I'm also sending to Congress a comprehensive package of, uh, that will enhance our underlying effort to accommodate the Russian oligarchs uh, and make sure we take their, take their, their ill-begotten gains. <laughs> We're going to accommodate them. We're going to seize their yachts, their luxury homes, and other ill-begotten gains of Putin's kleptocracy and klep the guys who are the kleptocracies. <laughs> but these are bad guys. Well, that was President Biden this week, once again, appearing confused and not in control, sparking more worries about his capacity to lead as the president's poll numbers continue to plummet. Joining me right now to assess the administration and the upcoming midterm elections is former House Speaker Newt Gingrich. He is also a Fox News contributor, of course. And Newt, good to see you. Thanks very much. Give us your reaction to the president this week as we look at the poll numbers, which continue to fall for President Biden. Well, look, I think, first of all, as a citizen, all of us have to worry about having a commander in chief who at a minimum seems to be confused a lot and at a maximum may well have a serious cognitive problem. I mean, in a commander in chief in a dangerous world, that, that should bother all of us way beyond politics. And it's clearly obvious every single week uh, with President Biden. I think second, he has a dual problem. He has a performance problem. Um, <clears throat> go to the gas pump, go to the grocery store, talk to average Americans. They've, they feel every day the failure of government to perform. And he has a policy problem, which Elon Musk captured perfectly this week, that they've now moved so far to the left. Uh, they're doing things that are so nutty that uh, people both reject how they're performing, but also reject what they believe. I mean, creating a government yeah. censorship office is crazy. Uh, opening the border totally is crazy. Uh, you just go through item after item like that, and you have to think this is a party and a president uh, that have totally lost their way. Yeah, you mentioned Elon Musk's tweet. Let's show that. This is the stick figure political chart, uh, which you just referenced. And you, you got a kick out of this. Why? Explain this uh, stick figure chart and what you think it tells us. Well, I think it's a, another example of Elon Musk being unbelievably smarter than almost everybody else. He took everything pollsters and social analysts have been saying and political analysts I uh, put it into a couple of very simple tweets or a couple of simple stick figures. Back in 2008, he was sort of a liberal and the liberals were fairly close to the center. Then in 2012, he was beginning to be sort of in the center and the liberals were going to the left. Now today, he finds himself to the right of center and he finds the liberals have gone crazy. They're so far to the left. And meanwhile, the conservatives in his stick figures are about where they've always been uh, in the record of, yeah. of Reagan and what we did and, and Trump. So I thought he captured in that one document the whole policy problem. Now, as I said, there's, there are two things going on. There's a performance failure and there's a policy failure. And I thought Musk did a great job. It's sort of ironic uh, that he put that yeah. together uh, and... I think the average American can look at that and say, where, where are you on this continuum? You like government censorship? Yeah. You like an open border? You like letting murderers back out on the street? Mm. Then you must be a Democrat. Uh, and yeah. I think that's sort of what Musk captured.
But, Newt, layered all on top of that, uh, aside from the bad policy decisions uh, resulting in terrible outcomes, which is what we're seeing, we are looking at perhaps the potential of the beginning of a recession. We got that GDP out last week, uh, a contraction in the economy. You also have corruption in plain sight. And I want to get your take on that. And, 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 and you mentioned the University of Pennsylvania, secret Chinese money. Uh, you, you think that's an even bigger story than the corruption of, uh, of what's on Hunter's laptop, right? Walk us through what you mean. Well, well the, the University of Pennsylvania that we know of has gotten at least $67 million from Chinese sources, uh, anonymous sources. The University of Pennsylvania refused to turn over information to the Justice Department in the last year of the Trump presidency. One of the major jobs of Congress should be to subpoena the University of Pennsylvania's records. They created the the Penn Biden Center for Public Policy. I don't know how many administration staff were being paid from that center, but they were being paid with Chinese money. Uh, and you have anonymous Chinese donors, the largest of which was $14.5 million. So you take everything that Hunter Biden ever did, uh, and then you look at what Joe Biden was doing. The story here is not Hunter Biden. The story here is the head of the family, just like a mafia family, the head of the family, who, by the way, if you go back and pull up what he said in various campaign events, I knew nothing. I never discussed my son's business. Well, we now know he wrote an $800,000 check for his son's legal expenses in business. This wasn't criminal. This was writing, to, including Chinese businesses. He wants us to believe he wrote an $800,000 check and didn't discuss his son's business. He wants us to believe yeah. they flew for 17 hours to China and they didn't discuss his son's business. The truth yeah. is Joe Biden is a liar. This is a corrupt family occupying the White House and we need to get to the bottom of it. And I believe the University of Pennsylvania's $67 million from China is a lot bigger scandal than Hunter Biden's laptop, as big a hand, scandal, frankly, as the laptop is. Yeah. Real quick before you go, Newt, is this resonating on the American people? We have some polls here in terms of the midterm elections. I want to get your take on the Republicans. Obviously, uh, the Democrats are attacking Kevin McCarthy. Uh, is, is there any division within the Republican Party? What can you say about that? No. And, and do you believe that the GOP has the advantage both on the House and the Senate side come November? I think we'll pick up between 25 and 70 seats in the House. We'll probably pick up about four seats, at least in the Senate. I think that uh, pe people like Herschel Walker are going to do very, very well. Uh, in addition, I would say that if, if you're in a district that Biden carried by less than 15 or 20 points, you're in great danger yeah. as a Democrat. And if, and if the tsunami gets big enough, we beat uh, Rostenkowski, for example, in downtown Chicago. Nobody thought that was possible. Once these things mm. start... And, and all you have to, have to do is look what's happening to the Latino vote. We are now stronger Republicans with Hispanics than we are with, with whites. And Kevin McCarthy will be speaker, and I think he will do an amazingly good job. On this episode of Newt's World, in recent years, it has become clear that there's a war going on, a war on the West. This is not like earlier wars where armies clash and victors are declared. It is a cultural war, and it has been waged remorselessly against all the roots of the Western tradition and against everything good that the Western tradition has produced. That is a quote 
from the opening lines of very, very important new book, The War on the West. Here to discuss his new book, I am really pleased to welcome my guest, Douglas Murray. He is the associate editor of The Spectator. The War on the West is his third book. His last book, The Madness of Crowds, which we did a podcast about, was a bestseller and book of the year for The Times and The Sunday Times. His previous book, The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, Islam, was published by Bloomsbury in May 2017. It spent almost 20 weeks on the Sunday Times bestseller list and was a number one bestseller in nonfiction. Douglas, thank you for joining me again on Newt's World. You know, the last time when you were on in July of 2020, when we talked about your last book, The Madness of Crowds, I thoroughly enjoyed you, and I thoroughly enjoyed your book. So I'm really delighted to have you back. Well, it's a great pleasure, Newt. Thank you. And I much enjoyed our last conversation, too. And I'm really looking forward to getting into this today. And before we get to the book, I cannot help, in the American tradition of being as transient and momentary as possible, but ask you about your recent New York Post article, quote, Dear Elon, here are five things you can do to make Twitter better from April 14th. And I'm curious, what are your thoughts about Elon Musk buying Twitter for $43 billion in cash and then the left's, you know, over-the-top reaction to it? It's a fascinating move because there's already been a change at Twitter because of it. I don't know if you've followed this closely, but even in the days since the success of the bid was announced, things have changed on the platform. So conservatives have, and the New York Post just ran this as the front page the day we're speaking, conservatives have noticed in conservative publications an enormous upswing in their followers. Now, this was originally said, well, maybe people are simply coming back to the platform. No, no, no. What's already happened is that the dark arts of Twitter are being undone. The staff at Twitter know that when the company is handed over, Elon Musk will have total oversight of all of the tricks that they've been up to in recent years. The attempts to silence conservative voices, to dampen conservative publications, so that even the oldest newspaper in America, the New York Post, can be dampened, as we know, at one point, but then they pretend it isn't dampened, it isn't silenced, and it is. The whole time they've been playing this incredibly unfair game against conservatives, and even the knowledge that everything is about to change has meant that things have already started to change at Twitter. Elon Musk is not a right-winger, particularly. You know, he's a libertarian tech guy. But the way in which the left has responded to his buying of Twitter shows the problems of the left. You know, the fact that people like Joy Reid have basically said it's like Hitler taking over Nazi Germany. They have gone do lally over this. And and the one thing I would say is that maybe they're right to go do lally over it because they have been used, the left, to having all the tech platforms on their sides and being used to do whatever they want and play their nasty games of silencing people and shadow banning people and so on. Well, if that were to change, the public square would be not just a better place for conservatives, it would be a better place in general because we would know the fairness of the terrain. 
So I think it's a terrific move. I really hope that more good will come from it. I have already personally felt the difference. I think we've picked up 24,000 new followers in a couple of days. Really? And it's fascinating um, because it was so outrageous. They helped distort the general direction of history by the ruthlessness of what they were doing, particularly, I think, in October of 2020. Oh, yeah. That was one of the most serious abuses of the press, I think, in our lifetimes. An extraordinary thing that a tech platform could silence a newspaper. But yes, very interesting. You've experienced the same thing that I have in that case. I think that a lot of the derangement that has gone on in American life, the wider West in recent years, is because these tech platforms have been playing games with us that we didn't know for sure that they were playing. Some of the historians will go back and look at it in much greater detail. But you happen to end up with extraordinarily democratizing and opening up systems being controlled by people who were so radically alienated from the society at large that they used the instruments in order to try to impose on the rest of us a set of values. And I'm running a program called the American Majority Project. We go through and we find over and over and over again that the people on the left are an extraordinary minority who have manipulated the commanding heights in the Marxist term to try to dominate. But let me ask you, because in a sense, I see this book, The War in the West, as the third in an evolutionary series. And I wonder if you could take just a minute and share with us first about the strange death of Europe and then the madness of crowds and how these two, in a sense, set the stage for your new book, The War in the West. Yes, that's right. I do see it as a third in a trilogy, effectively. My 2017 book, The Strangest Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity and Islam, was really about the migration crisis that Europe was undergoing at that point. But it was really about the wider question of migration in the 21st century. Many American readers and Australian readers and Canadian readers and others said, you know, this is about Europe mainly, but it's really about us as well, isn't it? And I always said, absolutely it was. About this great conundrum we have, which very few politicians, as you know, Newton, or thinkers are willing to consider. But this very big question of what happens in the 21st century where travel has never been easier, knowledge of other places has never been greater, communications have never been easier, and you have billions of people in the developing world who would like to move to the developed world. What does the developed world do in that situation? Well, one of the things, as I say in The Strange Death of Europe, is that the developed world can risk carrying out a form of cultural suicide to basically decide that it is the convening point for the world and therefore not anything of itself, nothing of its own, a sort of United Nations, should we say. So I confronted that, and migration, as you know, is one of the very hardest issues, and in a way, one of the most dangerous ones. Nobody really wants to talk about migration properly, because it's so complex. You know, the millions of people who want to come to America from Central and Southern America, totally understandable. Can they all come? Obviously not. And we struggle with this. After dealing with this very difficult issue, I thought, well, I've dealt with the issue of immigration as deeply as I can, and I'm still here, which I wasn't particularly expecting. I thought that I was going to be so completely destroyed reputationally for daring to ask the questions and answer the questions that I did. And so I thought, well, I'm still here. 
yeah, of course, I was defamed by the left and much more, but it didn't matter to me. I survived. So I thought, well, I'm going to look at all of the other difficult issues that are going on in our time. And I did that with the madness of crowds, all the things that people don't really like to think about or talk about in any depth or with any desire to reach conclusions. I looked at sex and sexuality and minority rights and race and trans issues. And I did the same thing. I said, I want you to trust me that I'm leading you fairly through very tricky terrain to try to get to truths, which is, you know, what's lost in every day's to and fro and in this twittering world, as T.S. Eliot said before his time. And I said in The Madness of Crowds, though, that something was going on, something deep was going on in our societies. And I was trying to put my finger on it in that book. There seemed to be a replacement ethic in our societies. Once there had been one ethic, now there was a different one. And the different ethic had become everything was about minorities. The most oppressed person somehow was the most correct person. The person most deserving of the microphone was not the person who knew the most, but the person who could say they'd suffered the most. And this had become an ethic I'd noticed that really moved into American life and into the wider Western life. But I still felt I wasn't quite at the root of it. And then in recent years, particularly since 2020, I realized, ah, I know what it is. I see what it is now. And that's what this book is about. It's the realization that what is going on is no less than a war on the West, a war on the Western traditions. It starts, as you know, with a war on the peoples of the West, a claim that white people are uniquely guilty or uniquely awful or uniquely historically bad. It continues with a war on our history so that all of our heroes are pulled down one by one. Everything that was good in our past is looked through the lens only of racism and slavery and colonialism. And then there's a war on everything to do with our religious inheritance, the Judeo-Christian religion, but also the secular traditions that America and other countries have benefited from. And then finally, the war on everything to do with our culture, so that nothing good and beautiful that has come from our civilization is allowed to survive without also being seen through this negative, negative lens. So this, I believe, is the underlying thing going on in our time. The anti-Westernism that means we like everything so long as it's not our own. We admire everything so long as we didn't produce it ourselves. It is a process, as the late Roger Scruton called it, of self-abnegation, a stripping away of all of the things that we've inherited and a replacement of it by, well, that's to be seen. The thing I'm struck by, from my perspective, is that this is almost a religious war. That you have a secular religion that has a compulsion to kill its competitor. And that there's a ferocity on the left that gets down to words. I thought it was very striking when the nominee to be Supreme Court Justice, Jackson Brown, when asked about how she would define a woman, said, not in this context, I'm not a biologist. Now, she clearly was dancing on the head of a pen because she couldn't afford to alienate the left and she couldn't afford to be honest with everybody else. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Classic thing. We have this ridiculous public debate where people like Justice Jackson Pretend that you have to be a hyper-specialist to know something that everybody knows, you know. I'm not a biologist. Well, you know, I'm not a vet, but I know what a cat is, you know. 
this idea that you can dodge questions like this by these silly dodges, these silly games, these pretenses that you need to be a hyper-specialist. It's an attempt to make things that are self-evident become so complex that effectively we can't say them. Right. And in fact, one of the things I've been most fascinated with, and I've thought about writing a newsletter, because I do three a week, they go out from Game Street 16, I've thought about writing one on birthing people's day <laughs> to replace Mother's Day, because the Biden administration actually uses the term birthing people in its budget document. Unbelievable. It's deranging and dementing, really, isn't it? The idea that we don't know what men are and what women are, and that just because there's a small number of people who are confused, therefore we do away with even the truth of the existence of biological sex. It's all part of it, you know? And I tackled that in the madness of crowds. It worried me deeply that we were permitting this to go on. But what I describe in the war on the West is in some ways even worse, because this same dementing thing is now happening, not just to the existence of the sexes, but everything in our own past. You know, my own country of birth, Great Britain, our greatest hero is Winston Churchill, almost without doubt. Uh, 20 years ago, when there was a poll of the BBC to try to find out who the British people thought was the greatest Britain, we voted for Winston Churchill by a landslide. Not just because, of course, of his stance in the Second World War and the fact that he for a time, led Britain as we stood alone against Nazi Germany. And had it not have been for Winston Churchill, perhaps all of Europe would have fallen to Nazism. We didn't just admire him for that, we admired him for so much. And the fact that our parents and grandparents' generation were encouraged through the war and managed through their suffering because of this great man's leadership. Today, Winston Churchill's reputation is being trashed on a daily basis. When the BLM protests broke out in London in the summer of 2020, in imitation of what happened in the United States, Churchill's statue in Westminster had to be covered over because it was assaulted so often. And I looked at that and I thought, why would they come for Winston Churchill? And then I looked at America. And I saw exactly the same thing happening here. Just last year, as you know, New York City's council chamber boxed up, pulled down and wheeled out on a crate the statue of Thomas Jefferson that had stood there since the 1830s. Why was Jefferson removed? Because as a member of the New York City Council said, Thomas Jefferson no longer represents our values. Every single figure in American history has been treated like Winston Churchill has been treated in Britain. Our great heroes are being pulled down before our eyes. Abraham Lincoln's statue was pulled down in Portland by a mob when I was there a couple of years ago. But then shortly afterwards, you didn't need the mob because the local authorities in Boston removed the statue of Lincoln in Boston because of the offense that it could cause. If you don't have Winston Churchill, you don't really have Britain. And if you don't have the founding fathers and Abraham Lincoln and all the other great men and women of American history to look up to, you don't really have America. And that, I believe, is the point. Their target selection, the anti-Westernists, their target selection is disgusting, but admirable in a way. They know exactly what they're doing. What do you think ultimately drives and motivates this level of hatred for the West? It's a number of things. 
One of them, of course, is the simple complexity of living in highly diverse societies. There is what I describe as a form of courtesy that ends up happening. We all know that the late Lord Clark of Civilization, Kenneth Clark, said at the end of his famous 1960s series, Civilization, that to him, civilization could be summed up in the word courtesy. And I was always very struck by this. And courtesy is a very important aspect in life, but it isn't everything. And the West has been persuaded to be courteous about things. So, for instance, we are used to the idea that we don't say we're better than other people. We don't say that our tradition is better than other people. Remember, 30 or 40 years ago, Saul Bellow, the great American novelist, got into some trouble when he said he wondered where the African Tolstoy or Proust was. And people said this was a very racist thing to say. Now, of course, there are answers to that, which is to say they are Tolstoy and Proust. You know, these are people who belong to everyone. But the point that Saul Bellow was trying to make was a serious one in a way, which is, are you allowed to say that a particular literature is just greater? Are you allowed to say that a particular political tradition is just greater? And in our own time, we sort of decided that we shouldn't. It's discourteous. And then what happens is, you actually lose track of your own tradition, your own argument. We now in America have, I say we because I live here now, but we in America have a problem which is, you would have thought would only occurred in the humanities, which was the pretense, basically, that everything was completely relative. Well, I thought that that would be a thing that stuck with the humanities. But no, it flooded through the STEM subjects as well. We now have equitable maths being discussed in American schools, which is because mathematics is Western and racist and created by dead white men and everything created by dead white men must be attacked. So science and the scientific method and rationalism must be attacked because it's all the product apparently of dead white men. Every single thing has been looked at through this remorseless lens. And the fact is, is that the peoples of the West have put up with it because we've been courteous. We didn't want to say what we needed to say, but what we needed to say was the Western system of, for instance, free market economics has not triumphed because it was invented by white men. It's triumphed because it works best. Similarly, the Western system of democracy may have been come up with by white men, but that's not why it's great. It's great because it works best. Now, it's the same with the scientific method. It's the same with mathematics, which actually people of all sorts of backgrounds contributed to, but which was refined in the West. It's the same with the Western tradition of culture, the Western tradition of music notation. These things work not because they were created by white men, but because they work. And because we have this war on white people, and dead white people in particular, all of this that I've just said has been made effectively impossible to say. And so we've had to, as a culture, first of all, be courteous and then end up just simply agreeing to lies. I think that's an important part of this. Much of what the left says is just a lie. And you actually have to train people to be prepared to stand and say no. Yes, exactly. It's not true. It's not a question of being debatable. It's not true. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And very few people, I'm afraid, Newt, have the courage to do that today. You see, in the history chapter in The War on the West, I go into this. I say, how many people really are confident of their history enough in America to say 
that's not true. You see, when I first looked at the 1619 project, which again, none of the stuff I'm describing in the war on the West is fringe, you know, it's all come right to the center. When I describe the 1619 project and the war on the West and I go into it, I lay out all of the flaws, just or actually not all, some of the flaws, all of the flaws would require a multi-volume book. But I describe some of the flaws in the project and they are absolutely appalling. They're schoolgirlish apart from anything else. The mistakes are unbelievable. The lies are reprehensible. But how many Americans actually feel confident enough now to push back? You see, it's like the sex thing we described earlier about the gender assigned at birth, birthing people, etc. I'm not a biologist. It's the same thing has been done to us all about our history. We've been made unconfident. We've been made to believe that the situation is other than it was. And well, I don't know. I'm not a historian. Sure, I'll go along with whatever the New York Times has decided we're all meant to be re-educated with now. This is a massive problem, Newt, in America. It's almost as though we've not just lost our confidence, we've lost our story. And one of the things I want readers to get from my book is I want them to get their story back. I want us in the West to get our story back. There's no reason to throw it away. There's no reason to be ignorant of it. There's no reason that bad faith actors like the people who wrote the 1619 Project and many others should get away with completely reframing American history or Western history or pretending our history is only about slavery and colonialism and racism or pretending that because racism was a part of our history, it wasn't a part of our history, but our whole history. This is what I want to push back against. And this is what I think this generation of Americans have a duty to do. You know, American parents today have a duty when their children come home from college to say to their children that they are wrong when they replay the lies that they've been taught at college. And equally, college-age students need to be educated to know what to say to their professors when their professors lie to them. When people say, as I say, from the New York Times up or down, however you'd like to see it, that this country of America, it has a founding sin, a unique sin in slavery. I want people to know, as I lay out in the book, that slavery was something which is completely abhorrent, but every civilization in history engaged in. America didn't engage in slavery because America was especially wicked. It engaged in it because in the time that America came about, everybody was doing it. Should people in the 17th century and 18th century have known what we know now? Yes, but they didn't. They couldn't have done. It would have been lovely if they had have done, but they didn't know what we know now. I mean, I say at one point in the book, I give example of the way in which Thomas Jefferson has been horribly maligned in recent years, and specifically actually by the absolutely appalling race huckster who calls himself Ibram X. Kendi, who sold this very, very popular selling book called How to Be an Anti-Racist, which I say just should have the anti taken out of the title. It's a deeply racist book about white people. Anyhow, Kendi in his book says the most terrible thing about Thomas Jefferson, misquoting Thomas Jefferson. And this is the thing that he misquotes, a private letter of Thomas Jefferson, in which Jefferson makes the observation that the races are different. Now, Ibram X. Kendi says this is evidence that Jefferson was a racist. Read the actual letter and see what Jefferson himself says. And I'm going to summarize. But he says to his friend, 
I don't know whether the races are the same. I do know, he says, that if you look at the Native Americans, he says they seem to, after a generation or so of education, be exactly like the white man. And I don't know what the situation will be with blacks in America, but I suspect that if the same education happens in a couple of generations, it will be the same thing. In other words, this was a very forward-looking point to be making in the early 1800s. Now, what is it that we know now that Thomas Jefferson didn't? In Thomas Jefferson's day, nobody knew whether the human races were even related. There was a significant debate that was not solved until a century later which was, were all of the different races of the world from the same stock or not? And nobody knew. And a lot of people thought, actually, we're not. We're totally different species. Nobody knew because the science wasn't in, the knowledge wasn't in, the DNA wasn't in. And so people like Thomas Jefferson get misrepresented, presented as horrible human beings by these Details like this that, frankly, American parents and American students need to know about because, as I say, we need our heroes back. We need them back. America without our heroes, without our founding fathers, without Lincoln, without the great men and women who built this country, without them, America is nothing. And that is precisely what the anti-Westernists of our day are aspiring to. They want to make America nothing. I recently did a podcast with Dennis Prager, and he was making the point that rituals matter, and that if you really look at Judaism, it is in fact thousands of years of very structured behavior, and that it has held the Jewish people together through all sorts of very difficult periods, and that when you start abolishing the Pledge of Allegiance or the standing for the national anthem, or celebrating the 4th of July as the national holiday, all of a sudden you are eroding the patterns and the bonds that are at the core of holding together a civilization. And I thought it was a very useful thing, and it reminded me, I'm sure you're familiar with Daniel Patrick Moynihan's essay on defining deviancy down, and the whole notion that as more and more people do something disgusting, we gradually try to mentally accommodate that that's okay because there are too many people for it not to be okay. But it occurred to me that our generation may in fact be faced with having to define deviancy upward and saying, no, this is not tolerable. And no, we're not going to accept this. And insisting on moving back up to standards that in fact have historically worked. That's right. Actually, this is why, you see, sometimes people say, well, you know, we need a leader who will lead us out of this. And I myself am not optimistic that that is the route. I believe that, as you just said, this has to be a bottom-up solution. I believe that we have seen that begin in America in the last year. I describe the way in which this you know, critical race theory and other terrible American ideas have been effectively exported, not just across America, but across the Western world, with terrible, terrible results. But you know, one of the things that is so striking and inspiring to me is that it is American parents who have stood up to this. You know, it wasn't in the end a great academic debate that took place at Berkeley as if 
they would allow an academic debate these days. It wasn't that. It wasn't actually a politician even at the beginning. It was American patriots. It was parents who went to their school board meetings and said, I've now found out what you're teaching my child, and it is wrong. Now, that might sometimes be history, but sometimes it is what I describe in the first chapter of the War on the West, which is the war on white people. Sometimes it is parents of all racial backgrounds, but noticeably parents saying, you are teaching my child to be a racist. You are, in the name of anti-racism, spreading racism. I play this thought experiment in the book. If you tell any person that by dint of the color of their skin, they are born evil and guilty, you are attaching electrodes to that child's brain and frying it. Now, that would be the case if you told a black child, if you were so reprehensible that you told a black child that because they had been born black, they were born particularly evil and particularly guilty. There were people in the past who did that, but we have a name for them, and that's racists. Now, today, in American schools, there are still teachers and unions who allow the teaching of the idea that white children are, by dint of their skin color, born evil and racist. And American parents must not put up with this. This, too, is racist. This is attaching electrodes to the brains of children and ruining their thinking processes. It is going to ruin their moral lives. It's going to ruin their characters. We cannot educate people into being free human beings who act well in the world and do great things if we tell them that from the birth they are weighed down with this evil that was done centuries before, not even by their ancestors, but by people who might have looked like them. You know, this is a great evil. Uh, it is American parents who have seized in their own hands the right to say, no, you do not do that. So I believe that although politicians have now come on board with this, this is a reminder that the future of the republic, the future of the West is in our hands, all of our hands. We cannot outsource this job. This job is for all of us. And that's why I say I want the war on the West to be read as widely as possible, because I want readers to be armed with what they need to say, the deep moral arguments and the specific arguments against the people who want to destroy this society. In that context, let me say, first of all, as the American Majority Project, where we've been looking for those issues which are so widely agreed upon that you can use them to basically destroy the left's credibility. 84% of the American people believe that parents have the right to know what is being taught their child, what textbook is being taught, what videos are being shown them. When you get to 84%, you're beginning to have the kind of majorities that can stand up to a militant minority and decisively defeat it. And we have a whole series of those things. I just wrote a series of articles on creating an American majority, not a Republican majority, the notion that there is actually a non-left majority that's massive, but has had very inadequate leadership. Two other comments I just want to make. One, which I think you'll just find interesting. I have on my wall in my office a sheet of paper, which was a wall poster that was done at home by hand. It was given to me by the Union Solidarity in Poland when Callista and I made a movie called Nine Days That Changed the World about John Paul II going home in 1979. And they were thrilled that we were doing it. 
The poster says in Polish, for Poland to remain Poland, two plus two must always equal four. And it is a repudiation of the situation ethics, the state and the academics. You're a birthing person, you're not a mother. Well, that's a pretty fundamental fight about the very nature of reality. And it actually is, in a sense, a response to Orwell, where the government torturer says to the citizen, if the state tells you it equals five, it equals five, and if we tell you it equals three, it equals three, because we define truth. And in a sense, I think what you and I are describing is, no, truth defines itself. And we are the vehicles of explaining it. But these people who think that they can invent a new truth are totally crazy because it's a denial of the real world. Well, but you see, at this point, it's demonic as well. I describe, as you know, in one of the chapters in The War on the West, I describe that there was actually this movement that started online to try to prove that two plus two equals four is a racist trope and that it is a white trope that it is the product of white maths. And these activists started to say that actually two plus two should equal something else. They wanted to prove that it could equal something else. And various mathematicians, including math teachers in American schools, joined in to try to prove that two plus two equals five. They actually did this, Newt, and simply to poke white people in the eye. At one point, one of the originators of this project was shown the passage you've just referred to from 1984, where they say that one day the state will tell you that you have to say two plus two equals five. He was shown this, and he had the decency, as it were, to say that he recognized that this was rather unfortunate. As opposed to a mortal threat to our freedom. I want to ask you one last question, which is I find equally fascinating, and that is the very people who despise and hate their own country are very careful to not criticize the Iranian dictatorship or the Chinese dictatorship. They're always willing to make an excuse for Xi Jinping while they attack Abraham Lincoln. What do you think is the pattern, which it's almost like in the old days of the communists that there were no enemies to the left? Because this is sort of like there are no enemies as long as they're anti-American. Yes, that's one possibility. I think that we're dealing with in enormous numbers with people who are ignorant. And I think that has to be borne in mind. And I go into the people who just don't know what's going on in the rest of the world, don't know that the CCP is what it is. There are others who are definitely motivated by political action. For instance, we have people who I show in the section where I say everybody in the past has been condemned for racism, except one man, as far as I can find, which is Karl Marx. And as I explore in his private and public writings, he was profoundly racist, much more so than any American hero. They haven't done it to him. They haven't done this remorseless, anti-dead white man thing to Marx. Why? Because they want to tear down everyone else and have Marx left as the only man standing. It's literally as straightforward as that with some people. But with other people, I'm afraid, Mute, we're talking about people who just don't know what the rest of the world is like now or ever was, you know? Throw a stone in an American street and find one person who could tell you what I tell people in the book about the slave trade going east during the same time as the transatlantic slave trade. Does one in a million Americans know that if up to 12 million people were taken across the Atlantic from Africa, sold by their brother and sister Africans, that up to 18 million were taken east to Arabia 
and were castrated so that there would not be another generation. Does one in a million Americans know that? No. Does one in a million Americans know that there are estimated to be 40 million slaves in the world today? I've met some myself in my travels. It's an appalling abomination that is still going on. There are estimated to be more slaves in the world today than there were in the 19th century. Does one in a million Americans know this? Does one in a million Americans know as we are going through everything in our history and tearing it to pieces because of claims of racism. Does anyone really know properly what the Chinese Communist Party's views actually are about racism? Last week, one of the organs of the Chinese Communist Party, the China Daily News, put out a graphic on social media of Uncle Sam sitting behind the Oval Office desk, surrounded by bodies, and said, America has always been about racism and death and family separations at the border. This is America. How many Americans are prepared for that? And how many know to say back, the CCP doesn't care at all about family separations? They could ask a million Uyghur Muslims currently in concentration camps about how much the CCP cares about that. In other words, are we ready to avoid the manipulation that is being forced upon us by hostile actors? I don't think we are, but I know we have to be, because that is one of the challenges out there. And as I say, the only person that's going to save us is us. I really, as always, find you to be extraordinarily knowledgeable and very incisive in your understanding of the threats to our very survival. And I want to thank you for joining me again. Once again, I think you've hit it out of the park. Your new book, The War in the West, is a compelling must-read for anyone who cares about our Western culture and where it's headed. I think you write some of the most relevant things today, and I admire your courage in being willing to take on things that inevitably are going to lead people on the left to regard you as a mortal enemy. I want to thank you for taking the time to share with us because you're always remarkable in intellectual ideas. Well, it's been a great pleasure, Newt. Thank you, and thank you to all of your listeners. And I really hope they appreciate and benefit from this book. I really do. Thank you to my guest, Douglas Murray. You can get a link to his new book, The War in the West, and to his earlier works on our show page at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.